0: This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Remo Giffray is a creative strategist with a long record as an entrepreneur, retail merchant and brand builder. He founded the iconic Remo General Store in 1988 and the General Thinking Network in 2001. In 2009, he took on the license for TEDx Sydney, immediately turning it into the gold standard for 10x events globally. Bursting with ideas and optimism, he's rarely discouraged and certainly never idle. As part of my preparation for this conversation, which I have been enormously looking forward to, uh, I reread your fabulous book, and there's a quote from it that I want to read out. Storytelling is paramount, and sometimes we can use things to connect us to what really matters, and that's the people who are associated with those things.
1: Mm.
0: Now that is what this whole show is about. That, that could be the summation of what mm. I'm trying to do with Five of My Life. So Where's I, my
1: clip? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I am, I am doubly thrilled yeah, that, that yeah. you are on this show because you you get it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and on the subject of stories, before we get to your choices and stories, I'd like to ask you what's been your uh, favourite Five of My Life story so far?
1: I really enjoyed Kate McClymont's story. You know, I, knew, I've, I know her, not well, I've met her a few times, but I just found it very frank, very honest, Um interesting I didn't know all of those tragic yeah. things about her family but also just her describing her craft and how it and the ins and outs of it and the encrypted conversations and the meetings behind uh, stables I just I was enthralled by the whole thing actually so.
0: yeah she's a fascinating fascinating yeah. woman I, I, I love that conversation mm.
1: but we're here to talk about
0: you and your choices and we ta- start traditionally with the film. Uh, and you have chosen the first film ever in human history to win a Best Picture Oscar as a sequel. Mm. You've chosen Godfather Part II, 1974. Uh, tell us about that, mate.
1: I was very reluctant to actually put that one down. It's such a cliche, number for an italo Australian boy to put the Godfather Part Two, but it was it went beyond the um, you know ethnic affinity. Um, the figure of the you know, Don Corleone um, born of God, the Godfather original movie and then um, the, the whole backstory, early um, early 1900s, New York City, da-da-da-da-da. It just reminded me so much of my father who was not an organised criminal by the way but um, the, his spirit was very similar, very uh, paternal and um, successful immigrant here in australia with many hundreds of employees working in factories from all nationalities the the shiny suit the the um the squeeze of the fruit as you walk past the fruit stand the uh, knowing everybody's name their children that that, that sort of You know, Don Corleone meets um, Oscar Schindler. That was my father. Now,
0: you mentioned the the ethnic uh, similarity, but for people who don't know, could you describe uh, your your family's
1: origins? Um, I'm full blood Italian. Uh, Dad uh, was born in Sicily um, in 1912, came out here as a very young man in in his teens on his own. Um, In those days, um, when I think it was the they were providing Malvasia for the Spanish army or something. And then when that crop failed in the islands, they had nothing except capers, um, to, to live on. So all anyone with any ambition, uh, ended up moving to the new world, whether that would be the United States or Canada or Australia. And, uh, my, uh, father's brother went to Boston, you know, dad came to Sydney. I think he was 14, um, he had a distant relative here working in the uh, in the fruit markets and I think that was his first job but he uh uh yeah, so that's dad's side from a tiny little island off the coast of uh sicily as part of the aeolian islands um and mum uh was born here in sydney of italian parents one from naples and and the other one from actually the same island that dad was from so full blood uh Full blog wog boy, growing up in uh, Sydney's eastern suburbs, but that was the that was my history.
0: And and he became quite a successful businessman.
1: Yeah, he was the uh, that classic industrial entrepreneur. Um, he started in the, as I say, in the flower market, uh, fruit markets, then then the flower markets. Then he bought his own florist, and then it was two florists and three florists and four flor- a chain of four in. King's Cross and Elizabeth Bay and Paddington, you know, all around there. And um, uh, then that kind of segued into a business manufacturing cellu- uh, transparent uh, celluloid boxes for the presentation of flowers. And, you know, the, the family legend um, propagated by him was that he was in a, in a movie, an American movie, and some bellboy delivered these flowers to somebody in one of these boxes. And he thought that's a great idea. And he kind of ran out of the theater without <laughs> skipping a beat. So then he got into manufacturing and, uh, one different kind of factory after the other metal stamping the, uh, in camper down, it was the, the Popolare, Popolare metal stamping, stamping company. It was, uh, the popular metal stamping company. Uh, and, uh, they made cosmetic packaging for all of the big, Cosmetic brands, Elena Rubinstein, who he knew and, you know, met all of those people. So, and then in the war, during the war, the the production ch- changed from lipstick containers to bullets. Right. Um, uh, and meanwhile, the kind of, the, the guy who did well early in his life was able to help a lot of other people and he became um, the go-to man for Italian immigrants coming here. Right. Often their first job would be at Popol- Popolaire or one of his factories. They used to call it uh, Popolare the Iron Lung because it was uh, it was the life support system for an Italian immigrant coming to Australia. Wow. Their their first job before going somewhere else, and then he formalised that philanthropic work um, in the fifties by founding something called the Italo Australian Welfare Centre, which then morphed into a Commonwealth government funded, uh, organization called COAZIT. And so he was the founding president of COAZIT, which still exists today. And there, uh, there in Leichhardt, there's the, G.A. Jufrey boardroom, uh, board room, uh <laughs> to celebrate his, uh, founding of that. So along the way, he was recognized by the Italian government a bunch of times Wow. Um, as a comandatore and then a grande ufficiale and then by the Australian government. Um, so he was a, He lived a very rich and generous life. And, and as I'm looking at the
0: the man in front of me now, um, are you a 50-50 combination of the traits of your mum and dad or did you get most of them from your mum or most of them from your dad and explain which ones you think you got from which?
1: Uh, yeah, probably 50-50. Um, uh, mum... Is a warrior, or was was um, a warrior, more of a warrior, more um, uh, worry, not warrior. So it's like, you, not not a, not a sort of sword carrying warrior. She
0: worries. Okay,
1: okay. So I probably get my um, uh, physical cowardice and uh, from. My physical cowardice and uh, anxiety from her.
0: So you're not very uh, good in a street fight.
1: No, I'd be running the other way. <laughs> I think. Uh, no, I'm really. I think I, I have courage uh, on some levels, but you know, I, I do. Uh, I do arduous, but I don't do perilous. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> and so, so, so that the, the worry side from your mum and from your dad. And-
1: um, well, the I guess the entrepreneurial you know um make your own path do your own thing do what's right but you know be certain about that um also he was the designer um as well as the the uh, you know the owner and so he he designed the the aluminium furniture that then went into production in his factory so and um, i grew up um seeing him at the kitchen table with scraps of paper and napkins, designing chairs and one thing or another, untrained, uh, formally untrained, but he was very good uh, at uh, imagining those things and then manifesting them in his factory.
0: Well, this is a very good link to the second choice on Five of My Life. You, For your book, you've chosen Ayn Rand's 1943 classic The Fountainhead. Mm. Um, Tell us about the book and your story behind it.
1: I was unaware. Once again, very kind of cliched and unpc uh, choice, but no, um, no, no. Why do you say that, by the way? Well, it is. I, it's been a long time since I read it, to be honest with you. Um, but it is pretty alt right kind of. Uh, I Power don't, I'm not so sure. Really? I, yeah. I, so I, I, I've read lots, yeah, yeah, lots of her yeah. work
0: and, and that, yeah. Shrugged and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I think she's very easily misunderstood. Yeah. Um. So I, I was glad you chose the book. I, I, I remember
1: to, that I, I when I read it, I was living in New York. I was 24. I was doing my MBA. Right. Um. And... Uh, a friend of mine who was doing an MBA there at the same time was reading it at the same time, so we were sort of... It's a life-changing book for many people. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I don't know if the listeners are aware of the storyline, but it's basically, you know, an architect who forges his own path and uh, um, is certain of his own um, uh, work and believes in good work is its own reward and that it's not necessarily about what other people think of it. He's not big on compromise, is he? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so I remember feeling, um, uh, invigorated, um, by, by that at the time and, um, feeling that I too, uh, you know, I guess it... It solidified my self belief, right, um, and um, gave me uh, you know confidence, extra confidence. I mean, I was already fairly confident. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting,
0: And I mean, she went slightly nutty at the end of her end of her days, but she said, "I am prime. I am not primarily an advocate for capitalism, but of reason, mm. and her major influence was Aristotle." Right. So, so it's easy now looking back in a woke Eastern suburbs way to go, Ooh, she was a fascist. No, she hated fascism. Yeah. So uh, th- that book is an incredible book. Yeah. But I-, I need to uh, hear how the hell did you get yourself to New York? Look at you in Manhattan doing your MBA. It sounds yeah.
1: fabulous. I um, did study commerce and law, and I worked as a lawyer for a split second. Living on the island, on, on Madden? No, here in, 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 York, yeah. in Sydney with um, Baker and McKenzie, um, who were still, uh, you know, probably the world's biggest law firm. Um, I enjoyed that intellectual challenge of that, and I actually enjoyed the people that I was working with, but I didn't enjoy the work that I was doing. Sure. And I, I knew, I, kn- I actually knew that it wasn't going to, retain me for that long. And then I just saw the MBA as a way to disrupt, um, that and, and expose me to, um, more opportunities and, and more. And I I was fortunate that my family was able to support that ambition. Um, I mean, it's not the financial commitment that it is these days, but even then, it was something. And, uh, so I left Baker and McKenzie after a year and, um, went to Columbia business school and lived, um, you know, initially on the Upper West side and oh, uh, in, in a sort of a big shared house thing called the international house. Then I, I went over the wall and moved into a share house on, in the East village oh. with, um, a Norwegian drummer and a Danish dancer. <laughs> and we lived above, um, a restaurant called the dumpling house. Um, the corner of 11th street and second avenue which is which then became um um david chang's first uh, momofoku uh dumpling house right. which is still there today but it was a pretty rough neighborhood in those uh so it was in 1985 right 84 85 um you know i do remember on more than one occasion hearing gunshot in the, gunshots in the street. and uh um but it was an exciting time um to be living in new york uh, I have to say it was the 80s it was nightclubs and the Palladium and Keith Haring and Aria and you know all of that stuff uh, Up there were the happiest
0: times in your life?
1: It was I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize them as the happiest but it's, there's certainly a a lightness of being that you have when you are that age you've kind of done your study or you've you're in the process of completing your study, you don't yet have a whole bunch of commitments, you're living in a place where nobody really knows you and you can kind of finesse your own persona and brand as, uh, as much as you would like to. Um, it just feels uh, it feels uh, kind of special, unique, not-to-be-repeated phase of your life. You know? it's,
0: it's a time where... You can take opportunities. Mm. There are, there are <laughs> later on in your life, many opportunities may present themselves in a whole host of different realms of our existence. Mm. And you go, well, uh, well, that's not me. I'm yeah. a sixty year old and blah blah blah, and I've got certain roles and responsibilities. But if you're living it up in East Village in New York, and, yep. yeah, God, well, I'm retrospectively jealous of you, mate. It sounds mm. no, like a,
1: it was a really great, term. great experience.
0: Your third choice it's mm-hmm. the, uh, the the song on five of my life there's a there's a Spotify playlist where all of the guests mm. uh, uh, choices are on and I'm thrilled to be adding yours mate because uh, you've chosen a a song from a soundtrack uh, it's um, Robert Altman's 1980 Robin Williams's Popeye film mm-hmm. not the Best film in the world one could suggest, but it, I'm not here to pass judgment. Uh, you, you've chose the, the, the Shelley Duval, a wonderful song, He Needs Me, written by Harry Nilsson, the American Beatle, um, and there's a fabulous story behind that. May, will you, will you tell us about why you chose that song?
1: I can't remember how I, we ended up with the cassette tape of it. It could have been Melanie's ex-boyfriend, Ricky Fatar, who was the drummer from the Beach Boys, actually.
0: Melanie went out with the drummer from the Beach yes. Boys.
1: Now that is a dinner party <laughs> classic. You win it right there. That's the mic drop. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, I'm guessing that's maybe where it came from, but um, uh, because Ricky was friends with Robin Williams. Um, but uh, I had been, I met Melanie soon after I returned from New York in uh, 1987 and um, became quickly smitten with her more smitten with her than she was with me <laughs> um, and more or less spent three or four years trying to sort of talk her around and uh, the the day when the day that things started to change significantly for us we were playing, we were in the car together playing that set tape on the way to a birthday party on the, um, uh, in whale beach or Palm beach. I think it was a recently deceased, sadly Martin Armage's, um, birthday. And, uh, Melanie had called me that morning to see if I would accompany her. I was living in a flat in Bondi, um, on the beach, uh, And, um, I didn't say yes straight away, which completely confused her. Later on, I think she figured out that I had someone else with me when she called. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that was a bonus point for me as well. But I, but it was a foggy day. We were crossing the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The music was playing and there was just this kind of feeling of euphoria for some reason, you know, that, that was welling in the car. I could start to see her defenses dropping after so many years. And it was a wonderful day and that music was kind of, you know, galvanised to that moment and so has become uh, kind of a very fond memory for me. Uh, that's a, that's a that beautiful
0: stuff. story. Would you mind telling us about the fax machine story? I was howling with oh, uh, that <laughs> I right.
1: Dis- well, as a way to illustrate the sort of disinterest the uh, deep disinterest that melanie had uh, for me at one point uh, as i was traveling quite a lot for my remo general store at the time and doing buying trips and um it was the days of um, it was the days of faxing and i had a little portable fax machine that looked like a tissue dispenser actually and I would uh, document what I was doing, who I was meeting, my fascinating trip, and send the faxes to her. She was running a super successful photographer's agency on um, Victoria Street in Potts Point. And as I have been told, my, my the fax machine would come to life. She would see it was from me. She would turn the fax machine around 90 degrees so that the fax paper would go immediately into the rubbish bin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a fairly brutal, brutal
0: image. The, the passion and persistence that you showed in 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 convincing that lovely lady to to hook up with you uh, is apparent in the passion and persistence with which you have been a leading light for TED. And, and I'd love you to tell us about that because that's a that's an incredibly interesting journey. It's ninety one you started.
1: No. Ninety one um was a uh heyday year for the Remo General store, and we had a big catalogue that won all sorts of awards and ended up on the desk of the founder of TED in New York, unbeknownst to me. And he once again sent, you know, once again the fax machine uh sent me a fax saying, just just saw a copy of your catalogue. It's wonderful. It reminds me of the Whole Earth Catalogue. I organise this annual uh, event. I'd love to invite you as my guest uh, on the condition that you can bring um, 800 of those catalogues with you to give to the attendees. And uh, never heard of it, did a bit of research, sounded interesting, and um, went, attended. uh, The next one was going to be in 1993 in Kobe, Japan, which was kind of weird because they they were always in Monterey in the U.S., but this, he tried doing one offshore and that was the first one I attended. And, um, you know, I I immediately became bewitched by this um, incredible event that with the most fascinating group of attendees you could imagine, you know, um, um, and the the randomness of the topics, the... you know, the Buddhist monk followed by an opera singer followed by a, you know, brain scientist followed by, you know, Bill Gates. And you never knew who you were going to be standing next to at the urinal. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, so I went the following year. He asked me to do the T-shirts for the speakers. And then the year after that, he asked me to do the T-shirts for everybody. And um, so, you know, there was lots of horse trading in those days. He, he was a mercurial... Um, guy Richard Saul Werman was his name. He used to be Frank Gehry's partner. Um, and he was um, known, he was best known for his, um, he had this tr- series of travel guides called the Access Guides that he, he was the first guy to organize information by neighborhood and not function. So the chapter had a neighborhood and there was the museum stream and then the shopping stream. And, you know, it was kind of a clever everything then he wrote a seminal book called information anxiety um and he's written many many books since then so so I was a, like a quote unquote tedster for a long time and in the years where I wasn't going broke here in sydney I tried to get to california to meet who were now my friends that I was seeing kind of w- once a year and checking in on and then you know cut to uh the 2000s and then they had this they developed this licensing program called TEDx, and um, they needed a safe pair of hands in Australia. They knew me well, and uh, they actually approached me and asked me if I would uh, do it. I was running a rebooted Remo general store as an online business from a very small, you know, hole in a wall location um, on. Um, um, it could have been the one on bon- shop shopfront on Bondi road or a warehouse, um, in, uh, in Surrey Hills. I forget, but I, you know, talked it over with Melanie. Um, I was about to turn 50. It, I had a, you know, developed a expertise in a profile as a kind of the t-shirt guy and the coffee beans guy and the you know, things person. And it, And I was always interested in more than that. Um, and this seemed to be like a good way to, um, reposition, uh, the things guy as the ideas guy. So, you know, I took it on and it just picked up a lot of momentum very quickly because of the depth of my legacy network, born of all of the work I'd done over many decades, um, with the Remo business. You, you do a fabulous
0: job with it. It's, Sydney's regarded as, I mean, I don't want to embarrass you, but it's one of the very best in the world, isn't it? Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, um, we've turned it into something that it wasn't necessarily intended to be, which is much generally much more grassrootsy and uh, low-key. Um, but, uh, you know, the people that I involved as collaborators early on were all at the top of their game and were all kind of interested in pushing it as hard and as um, high as it could be I, I wanna... you're probably you're too shy to admit that you were um, in the first very first group of speakers <laughs> I remember that conversation I'd never
0: heard of Ted and <laughs> when you asked me I uh, sort of whatever and then when, when I uh, when I investigated do you remember I called you back and said yeah. I, I, I can't do it you, you've got the wrong Nigel because these people I'm looking at in, a, in America they're seriously good. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got very fond memories of that, mate. I'm I'm very grateful that you sort of got me into into the TED world. Um, I, I want to circle back, um, uh, because there's a really interesting story uh, buried away in you just casually saying, "Oh, this bloke in, in America, you know, catalogue landed in his desk." Yeah. That's because the the, the the Remo store. I, I wish I come to Australia earlier because I don't get it. I haven't got that that cultural heritage of having grown up with it. I meet people who go on about the store on, mm. it was Oxford Street wasn't it, mm. they go on that I can't understand because I, I wasn't here, there. I mean I know you, love you, love the Remo, blah blah, blah 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 but I didn't understand the, the people tell me every single week, every Christmas it, it was just this icon, mm. such an icon that someone in America yeah. is getting a catalogue, to tell us a bit about the Remo store
1: story for people who might not yeah. know When I returned from America I had all of these degrees, you know the commerce degree, law degree, MBA, the corporate world is your oyster. But, but because I was so um, my own person, I just couldn't, um, I, you know, I did get a real job for a little while uh, as the head of business development for some uh, media company. Is it soul crushing? Uh, it was soul crushing and it was kind <laughs> of like, I just couldn't understand the relationship between my effort and the end user, the, the punter. Because there probably wasn't one, mate. Because there probably wasn't one. <laughs> but um, so I really wanted to simplify uh, that, and I wanted I wanted to cut out all of the steps, and I wanted to be able to do something that I could then serve someone with, a cup of coffee, I don't know, sell them, sell them a t-shirt. So I um, I ended up um, taking over the lease on this um, five and dime, you know, Greek gift shop on the corner of Crown and Oxford Street, which had been there for a long time. And I, I my mother's reaction was, "Darling, you've got three degrees and you're opening a shop. Please help me understand. <laughs> we sent you to New York, yeah, you bastard. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't exactly the you know the immigrant's dream for the for the next generation professional uh, son. But for me, it was um, semi desperate. It was like, okay, I choose to live a life of passion. I don't you know care if that's a small life of passion, but I choose to live a life of passion. Hopefully. I, there will be enough people who will resonate with the things that I have cu- that I will curate from both here and elsewhere and develop that I will be able to, you know eke out um, a self-employed existence. But it was just a phenomenon from day one, you know like uh, it even before it opened, people were talking about it and running news stories on it. and it just literally had, know big black window with the one word you know remo opening soon and that was kind of enough to uh and it was an interesting time in darlinghurst too there was a lot of creative energy the old sergeant's pie building was full of squatting designers and artists mark newson um uh, jewelers every every you know sculptors every every hat makers every lots of creative energy and so apart from anything else, apart from bringing in manufactured items and telling their stories, it also served to be a platform for that creative community. They would do their art, make their art, but they would also make something that could be sold. So I was like the real real world Etsy, if you like. Yeah. So we had a department that was the real world Etsy and sold all manner of um, manifestations of contemporary design energy from that corner of Darlinghurst. And we were blessed with a five meter window, which very soon after we opened, we, we realized could be, you know, our cheapest form of advertising. So we paid a sign writer to change that every two weeks to something very bold and very, um, you know, striking. And so that those windows became very well known in Sydney as a sort of, um, a, a pulse of what was happening didn't always try to sell stuff. It celebrated things. Um, um, you know, the Mardi Gras, whatever it was when, when a homeless guy called Barrow man died, uh, in a very sort of anonymous way. I was sitting at a dinner with an artist called Richard Goodwin who told me the Barrow man story, who sketched a silhouette of Barrow man. I recognized that because I'd seen this guy pushing a barrow with a, with a helmet on with his like dark face buried deep, you know, as he walked along, um, Richard turned out to be the only person at this guy's funeral. Uh, nobody knew him. So we decided there and then at that dinner that we would celebrate Barrow man in the window. So Richard, um, provided gave me the sketch. I gave it to the sign writer. We did a huge, you know, Barrow man on a, on a, on a background streetscape, uh, And uh, just a sort of dedication to him with his real name in the corner. And, uh, you know, the outpouring of love that we got from the community um, was great. And that barrow, I think, you know, went to the powerhouse collection. And so it was as much about a contribution to the culture as it was about selling.
0: This is exactly. exactly. So, so, you know, hearing about it, not understanding about it, you think it's a shop. It's not a shop. In in some ways, it's analogous to the role that your dad had, but in a different sphere. You were the centre of something. Mm. Yeah.
1: A, a wonderful story and a, and a
0: huge credit to you
1: yeah it was a lot of fun and you know it it fell in it fell on hard times financially for all the wrong reasons actually it was all about the the administrative back end and how things were you know the systems and the, or the lack thereof the the demand was galloping forward ironically you know at the uh growing um you know when, when it went, broke in nineteen ninety five, like on the day my daughter was born. Um <laughs> right. know, it's a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was uh, you know, almost selling five million dollars worth of stuff out of a, a single shop with a little mail order business. It's kind of unheard of numbers. Uh even by today's standards. Would
0: it be fair to suggest that you might not be as interested and excited by the back-end admin
1: than the the ideas, Remo? Or would that be an unfair slur? I was all yin and no yang. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. no, if anyone needed a a, a chief operating officer or a a financial controlling partner, it was me, but... um, uh, I was also a bit of a control freak, uh, so it was for me to share power was um, was difficult. But you know, a hard lessons got learnt, and uh, you know I wouldn't go there again.
0: Your fourth choice is the place. And I know you were in a dilemma. You were back and forth on the email. Do I choose this? Do I chose that? I am so glad that you came down to the 112 population access only
1: by boat. Tell me <laughs> about Milson's Passage. <laughs> um, this is a little community on the lower Hawkesbury River, uh, one hour north of Sydney, like one hour north of Sydney, but a thousand years north of Sydney, uh, a thousand years ago. Um, I, uh, yeah, because the runner-up was Bondi, as you know, because I'm... Which you
0: didn't choose, so I, we're not going to talk we're about We're not going to talk
1: about <laughs> <laughs> I know you love Bondi. Uh, <laughs> Tell
0: me about Milson's Passage.
1: Um, a circuit breaker, you know, I needed a circuit breaker in in the intensity of, of life. Um, I needed somewhere to represent and wherein which could be about rest and reflection and reading and remoteness, um, which was not about intensity and social and network and, you know, everything that the city is about. And, um, you know, the 2016, my mother died. Um, there were some, you know, other, other stresses going on in my life at the time there was, um, you know, health episode, which turned out to be nothing, but it just kind of, um, uh, just gave me pause to reflect. I remember sitting in a cafe, um, in, I'm sorry, Bondi. <laughs> um, and I drew up, uh, a, a, a typical week for my future life. And, and it involved being in Bondi for four nights a week. And being at another place for three nights of the week, which was called Shack, right? And it, it was an abstraction. It was just called Shack, and it was about rest and remote and reflection. And given that I'm a kind of a water man, it was always going to need to be near the water. Anyway, I told, I showed Melanie this plan. She liked the plan, but she doesn't do abstract. So immediately she was like, "Okay, water, close enough to Sydney. You don't like to drive on public transport." We basically, by process of elimination. We came up with kind of the only that part of the lower Hawkesby River which is quite close to the bridge um that heads to Newcastle there so just to the left of that there are a handful of river uh, communities to which you can only get to by boat so you so you know you, we needed to get boat license anyway we connected with a real estate agent um who was very very nice and took us around in a boat to visit a whole bunch of places. And we were downsizing in Bondi as it happens at the time. And we just managed somehow to figure it out financially that we could, uh, do this. And, um, and we did it and we bought a little shack. Um, well, we call it a shack. It's, it's a, it's a house. It's a two bedroom house, but it's like a forties looking thing. Rustic. It's yeah. Yeah. um, on a huge block of land, you know, backing onto the national park with river in front and, uh, and, and with a bunch of neighbors, I think there's 45 homes in the community. Every home has its own jetty. Uh, every jetty has its own boat that gets the owner from the marina to, to the house. Everyone, it's like a country town. But, but this is... It's Schitt's Creek. <laughs> it's a, it's Sydney's Schitt's Creek. But, the, but we're talking no shop, no post office, no
0: nothing. It, it is remote. I mean, you're properly
1: Pro- isolated. Proper remote. Um, uh, There is a, the Riverboat Postman is a boat that um, takes tourists up and down the river. It drops off and collects the mail every day. So, uh, so I could send you a letter at milson's Passage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah wow, stuff okay. arrives there. I mean, okay. go to the mail shed and someone, you know... Oh, Ron's ordered another box of wine. That's interesting. <laughs> and, and and have you found that you
0: have spent more time there than you imagined in that cafe in Bondi, or, or, or was your four three split? Uh, Initially, accurate?
1: it was a r- about right, um, but with COVID, right? You... we've we've skewed it way sure. you know, there. So now it's probably five there and two here. Um, I love the balance, Melanie. M- m- is more in love with the river than you know she she may be less reliant on the daily dose of Bondi that I get when I come back for a couple of days and do some laps in the pool uh she she would happily just camp out there and uh, right in,
0: in in Milson's passage yeah yeah i i wonder i mean this this is a very weird question to ask um you you guys are so fabulous but are you a nightmare to live with
1: We spend a lot of time together. (laughs) Answer the question. I didn't say how much time did you spend
0: together. I said, are you a nightmare
1: to live with? Well, no, we're not a nightmare to live with. We're actually quite, we're very relaxed parents. um, But we both have fairly strong aesthetic uh, opinions. Right. Where the picture goes, what (laughs) shade of pink the house should be, what, gauge of copper for the outdoor shower, you know, and we will eventually um, compromise, but no one's going to roll over for anyone else all that easily. This this is the
0: perfect link to the the fifth (laughs) choice on Five My Life, because you have said in another forum, everything we own retains a meaning for one or both of us and the fifth choice on five my life is a possession so i imagine it was a nightmare because you'd have like a thousand things that you potentially could Mm. have chosen uh but you've chosen a silver napkin ring tell me about that
1: one of the my father's work associates was this um cockney self-made man millionaire guy called len matchen um He oversaw a conglomerate of companies, um, called the Cope Allman Group and, and it acquired one of my father's businesses and renamed it as Cope Allman Australia, Australasia, and appointed my father to be chairman of that. And so dad having, you know, worked for himself his whole life, all of a sudden was part of this kind of, um, you know, global group based, based in London, Len, um, And I had met him a bunch of times on his business trips to Sydney. He was a larger than life Cockney kind of character, as you can imagine. When we went, um, visited London, um, as a family, when I was in my, I can't remember, you know, early teens or younger, uh, chauffeur picked us up in the roller, took us to a restaurant, served us the roll mops, you know, it was the, it was the whole shebang, uh, flashy, um, Arthur Daly come good kind of guy. But um, he, as a tax haven thing, he bought this island in in the Channel Islands called Breku and lived on it uh, uh, as the king. So when I was doing my 19-year-old, you know, in between university years uh, trip to Europe, I decided to go visit um, him and his... um, Partner who had been his secretary, uh, Sue, on Breku. And I was once again picked up by helicopter in Jersey, taken to the island, and spent three or four days there. Um, with the king. With the king, and, you know, spending like many, many hours of each of those days being tested by the king. I was a fairly confident 19 year old, but he was really pressuring me for my motivations and he was angry with me some days and then not angry. And then he would reminisce about my father and burst into tears. And I I mean, he'd be drinking tea or pepe, sherry and champagne for most of the day. Even sitting in the hot sauna, I could just imagine he was going to like keel over. Anyway, we we got on, we got on well, had a wonderful, um, incredibly formative in some weird way time with him. And then two years later, this package arrived From him and I opened it, and it was for my twenty-first birthday party and a birthday. And it was a silver napkin ring, hall stamped with, or you know, his personal coat of arms and the and the uh, the stamp of the island, etc. and so forth. And it had my name engraved um, in all capital letters, R E M O, right on the napkin ring. And um, and it was very powerful thing for at, at some subconscious level i think not immediately but i think seeing my name like that was the first time i the penny started to drop that maybe this name could represent something other than me myself
0: yeah cuz that's how your brand is it, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's just one, your first name in capitals not your last name, yeah, and then that becomes the brand that yeah. you so successfully
1: Yeah, did. so I think it was um, perhaps unconsciously on their part, they planted a seed that would not sprout for another seven years, but I think I can kind of trace it back to that moment when I – I first thought of myself as potentially...
0: What a fascinating story. And, yeah. and then you, you've got to live this life, which what I'd like to ask you about, where how, if at all, do you manage that dichotomy of, of Remo, the nice chap I'm looking at, and Remo, the brand that does all these amazing things, General Thinker, Ted, I mean, you know, you, you're a, mm. I, I've, got, I've got a quote here about you, which <laughs> I absolutely love. Remo, and I don't know whether they're talking about Remo, you, or Remo, the brand, but Remo is a bit famous. A familiar name in the right circles and for the right reasons, which I think is just sensational. You, you are so well known and so well loved amongst so certain Just a people. bit, yeah, just Well, no, and no, I, I actually think it's in, in certain circles you you are Lady Gaga meets Madonna meets you know Mahatma Gandhi, and in other circles they go who? <laughs> <laughs> but, but but so how, how do you manage the the I'm Remo I'm Remo I mean as in hello who the hell are you does that bother you or do you just is one the same thing
1: <clears throat> oh it doesn't you know i quite like um not having face fame and just having name fame it's it's always nice to be able to live anonymously and also the you know the core of the people who know my work oh with the exception of tedx sydney are um you know getting older so um uh a lot of the met Is probably coming from people, you know, who are the next generation. But, um, no, often, often I'll have, like, we just, uh, sold the vacant block of land next to the shack that came with the shack, uh, to a guy from the eastern suburbs. And, uh, I happened to like just bump into him the night before last he was, he was at Gelberson's on Lamrock Avenue and I was with Roman and his girlfriend, Katie, and, uh, we had a chat, and the first thing he said to me was, "And this is after we've exchanged contracts, settled, whatever, whatever." And he's from this something, he says, "So you're that Remo? <laughs> I just figured out who you are. Right. So you're that guy."
0: <laughs> so, so that's that. You've you've cracked the code. Actually, that's nice. You, you've got a sort of fame on your own terms. I mean, fame. What a stupid word. But you, you've you've got a, a mm. profile, but it doesn't it doesn't mess with you at all. It's it's an asset rather than a
1: I'm interested in profile, not for its own sake, only for um, as a result of doing good work. You know, for me, it's all about the work. Um, It's just been a delight talking to you, mate. I'm I'm
0: so glad that you came on. I got a lot out there, didn't I? Yeah, you did. I I love it. And (laughs) none about bloody Bondi. We we, 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 we did it. Um, Tell me that there's a sixth question. Yeah which I'm really enjoying, but we're going to get around to all these people eventually, but we got so many people coming on and wanting mm. to come on. But uh, we have a tradition where we ask all our guests who they uh, would like to hear on Five My Life next, and then we make a note. And oh, okay. So who would you like to hear on Five My Life next?
1: Um, I think Dare would be good. Yeah? Dare Jennings. Okay. Tell me why. Um, he's just got a very interesting, you know, he's from Griffith, Country, Country Boy, sort of fell into being a kind of global fashion entrepreneur he um started a silk screening you know t-shirts for rock and roll tours and we met very soon after the penny dropped for him that he should that he would make more money out of um and get more satisfaction out of creating a brand of his own designs which which was mambo then producing tens of thousands of hard rock cafe t-shirts and selling them to the promoter you know so
0: well i look forward to hearing uh, his choices Rame, thank you so much for sharing your five on five my life mm, thanks Nig. the five of my life was presented by me nigel marsh producer alex mitchell sound production and theme music by darcy thompson and matt nicholish